Good morning. It is good to see all of you and thank you for coming, being a part of our worship services here at Ivy Creek Baptist Church this morning. And uh, as you can tell from our decorations and from our music, and if you drove in and listened to the radio or watching the TV, you know it's the Christmas season. And so we're excited about the Christmas season here at Ivy Creek. And I just want to echo what Pastor Ted said earlier. If you have not been able to make it to one of the performances for the Christmas at Ivy Creek, I hope that you will make your plans to come back tonight. Uh, I do believe that you will be blessed by it. I think that it will add to your being able to celebrate Christmas and, and experience the joy. And I, and I hope that you will just come and make your plans to be a part of that event this evening. If you've got your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you do, would you please take them out and turn with me once again as we look through the Psalms of the Ascent to the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 133 and 134 this morning. You know, we've been on this journey together through the Psalms of the Ascent now for quite a number of weeks. And today we come to an end of that journey. But I, as we do, I want to make, uh, remind you of a few things that we've learned along the way. You'll recall that when we began this journey through the Psalms of the Ascent, one of the things that I uh, told you there that I hope that you would, would recognize was that these 15 Psalms that collectively make up this, this collection of the Psalms of the Ascent are, are really songs that were sung by the pilgrims and the journeymen who made their way from all across the different areas of, of the nation of Israel when they came together the three times of year for the festivals that they would go and make that pilgrimage to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs as they made their way to Jerusalem. And so these songs, though they were, they, they, they were written at different times in Israel's history, they were written by different authors, and yet they were a, a, assembled into this mini hymnal in order to be sung by these pilgrims as they made their journey to Jerusalem. And if we look back across these psalms, we'll see that, that really the, the nature of the psalms themselves sort of take us on that journey. It, it tells us a little bit of what that journey was like. For example, the, the 120th psalm, the very first one of this assemblage of, of psalms, and it, it began in a, in a distant land, in the land of, of, of Meshech and Kedar. And you'll recall there that the psalmist described that land as being a land where the pilgrims were surrounded by people who had, had uh, uh, slanderous tongues and, and lying tongues. And that's where all of this begins, is in a faraway land, away from the house of God. But then Psalm 121, we get our first glimpse of the holy mountain that they're going to climb in order to get to Jerusalem. And the pilgrims there, they lift their eyes to the Lord, who is their helper and who is their keeper. We see that there. And then in Psalm 122, we rejoiced with them as they, having made their way up that mountain, actually now walk through the gates into the city of Jerusalem, into the holy city. And then in Psalm 123, we, they made it all the way to the temple and we watched as the eyes of the pilgrims were raised to the one who sat on the throne. And then in the intervening Psalms that have taken place beginning in Psalm 124 and working their way through even the last one that we looked at last week, what we've been given are various reflections on the grace and on the presence and the blessings of God as it rests upon His people, particularly as His people gather together in the temple to worship the Lord. And so this morning, as our journey through these Psalms of the Ascents come to the end, I think it's appropriate that we understand that, that really as this, as this Psalms of the Ascent come to the end, we see that the pilgrim's journey comes to an end as well. Their trek to worship God in His temple culminates with them actually worshiping alongside their fellow brothers and sisters. And then it also 
finishes up with them bidding farewell to the priests and the Levites who will remain there in the temple doing all of their priestly duties while they, the pilgrims, go back to their homeland. And so, as Derek Kidner has noted in his commentary on, the, on these final two psalms, he says, they form an appropriate ending to this mini-hymnal that we've been studying. He says, the songs of ascent, which began in the alien surroundings of Meshach and Kedar, end fittingly on the note of serving God day and night within the temple. And that's what we're going to see this morning. And what we are going to, 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 to notice is that alongside what we've been noticing and what we've been being taught as we've read these other Psalms is that the psalmist is going to focus our attention once again on the blessings that God provides his people. Specifically, here in these final two Psalms, we are given a vision of the blessing that God provides when his people gather together and bless his name. So I want us to read these Psalms together as we conclude our study through these Psalms of the Scent this morning. The first one is written by David, and the second one is by an unknown author, and yet I want you to be able to hear the blend that comes from these two as they have been provided together. Psalm 133, blessed unity of the people of God, a song of ascents of David. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head, running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments. It is like the dew of Hermon, descending upon the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Psalm 134, praising the Lord in the house, in his house at night, a song of ascents. Behold, Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. The Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together this morning. Father, how we thank you for your blessings. How we thank you for your word. Thank you that you give it to us that we might be able to read it and that we might be able to study it, and that we know that the truth of your word can penetrate our hearts and impact our lives, so that when we leave this place, we can leave changed from the way that we came in. Not by our own power or our own will, but because you, the sovereign God of heaven, has worked through us, through your Holy Spirit, through the power of the truth of your word. I pray that that would happen today. Humbly, we come before you, begging and pleading that you might work a great work within us that we in turn then might live lives that will bless you we pray in Christ's name Amen in my reading this week I came across a writer who who said that when you first begin talking about the subject of unity it's something that may appear on the surface to be quite simple and perhaps even something that is easily attained but then he goes on to state that with a little life experience and some familiarity with the history of the church, as well as political organizations and businesses, we quickly realize that unity is far from easy to achieve. Perhaps it's that fact. Perhaps it's the fact that unity is, is difficult to achieve, that it, that it has to be worked for, that it involves labor and sacrifice Perhaps it's those factors that makes the words that David writes here 
in Psalm 133, the way he opens this psalm makes those words so beautiful. Listen to them one more time. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brethren and sisters to dwell together in unity. J.J. Stuart Perrone, who is a commentator on the Psalms from a previous century, he, he wrote this, Nowhere has the nature of true unity, that unity which binds men together not by artificial restraints, but as brethren of one heart, nowhere has that been more faithfully described, nowhere has it been so graciously and gracefully illustrated as in this short psalm. Now, the historical setting of this psalm is something that's somewhat debated, but I think it's pretty obvious that, that with David being given the authorship, that it very likely describes what took place in 2 Samuel chapter 5. Because in 2 Samuel 5, we learn that David was coronated as king over all of Israel. And, and, and he was able to bring all of the tribes of Israel together in one unified whole because they had been very divided under the reign of King Saul. And so in 2 Samuel 5, verse 1, we hear these words. It says, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spake, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. In other words, they came together and says, David, we're your brothers. And we're here. And we're united together. We are family. And as James Montgomery Boyce writes, he says, After the divisive years of Saul's reign, the ascension of David would have marked an exciting beginning and it would have been appropriate to celebrate it with the hopeful words of Psalm 133. But as we've already noted, unity is not just a simple concept. It's not something that's just easily achieved and attained. And it certainly does not come without sacrifice. Josh Moody notes in his commentary on this passage that the great conductor Leonard Bernstein was once asked what was the hardest position in an orchestra to fill? And he replied that the hardest position to fill was that of second fiddle. He says, to play the part of second fiddle requires great skill and also a willingness to be relatively more obscure. It is second fiddle. Yet without the contribution of that second fiddle, he writes, and other second chairs like it, then the sound is not harmonious. And listen, harmony, communion, unity among brothers and sisters, that is what David says here is good and is pleasant. We might even paraphrase what David says this way. When, when God's people come together and they make music together with their lives, the music that they make when they are in harmony with one another is beautiful music. Stephen Uly notes this. He says, this harmonious unity among God's people comforts the discouraged. It recovers the wayward. It challenges the careless. It encourages the sorrowful. It orients the confused. And it revives the exhausted. Now, when you think about all the benefits then that come from being unified and for brothers and sisters to dwelling in, in harmony with one another, then we too can say it is good and it is beautiful when brothers and sisters come together and dwell in unity. Here's what we know. Unity and harmony like that doesn't come naturally. It's not natural for us 
as individuals to be willing to play the second fiddle. It's not natural for us to be willing to sacrifice things that are near and dear to us in order for there to be unity. In fact, the natural thing for us to do is to fight for our rights. Eugene Peterson, in his, uh, in, in, in his commentary on this passage, notes that, that the natural tendency for brothers and sisters is not to get along, but to fight with one another. I hadn't planned on saying this, but I am going to say it. The tuning quartet was up here this morning. Blessed my heart immensely. You had the father and then the three brothers standing next to him. And, and I've talked to those tuning boys a number of times. They were in unity this morning. I don't think they were always in unity, were they, were they Kim? But they were in unity with this morning. But you know what? It's not natural always for brothers and sisters to come together and live in unity. Sometimes we fight. Eugene Peterson notes that if we read the Old Testament, we learn that the first brother-brother relationship, Cain and Abel, resulted in a murder. We learn the fact that, that Joseph, he was so envied by his brothers that he was sold into Egypt as a slave. We also learn that Miriam and Aaron, that they quarreled with their brother Moses. And David, nonetheless, who writes this psalm, knew what it was like to be scorned by his own brothers. Consequently, we know that living in unity and harmony, it's not natural for us. So consequently, we must conclude that harmonious unity, which is both good and pleasant, must originate from outside of us. It has to come to us from a supernatural source. And that's exactly what David begins to tell us about in his psalm. He describes that that good and pleasant unity is, is like the precious oil upon the head running down, running down the beard, the beard of Aaron, running down on the edge of his garments and like the dew of Hermon descending upon the mountains of Zion. Now there are two images that, that David presents for us here. He talks about, and, and in doing what he does, he's explaining to us the supernatural origin of this unity to which he calls us to. And the first was that oil that was used to pour on the head of, of the priests when they were going to be consecrated for the Lord's work. It was a special recipe of oil. It was a special recipe of, of ingredients that was put together that God said, you are not to use that oil for anything else except the anointing of the priests. And then it would be poured. And in this particular case, it was poured upon Aaron because he was the first of that priestly line. And it was poured upon his head and it went all the way down his face and all down his thick beard, down onto his garments, and all the way to the hem of his garments. And while that may freak some of us out a little bit to think that we've got oil all over us like that, it was a scenario here that was so aromatic that everyone in the area would know and they would be able to tell that this was one who had been marked out. Then he also talks then about Mount Hermon, which stands over 9,000 feet high in the nation of Israel. And at that height, the dew would lay so heavy every morning that it would be so thick and it would run. It would be like rivers that would be cascading down that mountain. And, it, and he says here, it goes all the way down 6,500 feet below it, down onto Mount Zion, and that it would rush through. And we could talk about how sweet the smell of, of the oil was on Aaron's clothes. We could talk about how wonderful it was to have the, the, the dew running through in, in all the vegetation. But really what I want you to focus on is since David is talking about the origin, notice the verbs. The verbs that he uses, the New King James talks about this way. He talks about the oil running down, running down the face, running down the beard. He talks about the dew descending upon. 
And so when we get to see those verbs, we get to recognize that what David's pointing us to is that this unity that he's describing in this chapter is not something that comes from us naturally. It's not something that we can create on our own and do it horizontally. It's not something that we can by nature make happen on our own. It's a unity that comes from God. It descends from on high and it comes down to us as a gift from God. The Bible tells us in James that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father who dwells in heavenly lights. It comes from Him. It's, a, it's something that comes to us from Him. And David realized that such unity and harmony among the brethren was of great importance. It was not something that was obtained cheaply. It was not something that was maintained cheaply. In fact, history goes on to tell us that after David, his son Solomon assumed the throne. And once he had died, then the nation of Israel, after Solomon had passed away, wound up dividing again. It split into two. And ultimately, as we even looked at last week, we know that they all, many of those went into slavery. Consequently, we could accurately say that the other side of what David writes here is also true. Behold how terrible and ugly and awful and nasty and unpleasant it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in disunity and in factions and in disharmony. So, if it is good and pleasant to dwell in unity and if that unity originates with God as we have seen, then how has God made that provision for you and I to be able to dwell together in unity and to be able to avoid the ugly disharmony to which we by our very natures will naturally deteriorate? Well, I am so glad you asked me that question. Because you see, according to what the further revelation of Scripture tells us, the unity of God's people is achieved ultimately and fully and completely through our faith in Jesus Christ. You see, when we by faith receive the gift of grace that is offered to us through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we become brothers and sisters together in Christ. That is why you hear us talk about the fact that we are family here at Ivy Creek. That's why you hear us repeat the words over and over and over again that we are brothers and sisters as a matter of fact, just to remind you of who we are, we are a you-all gospel-first, servant-hearted family of believers who want our lives to count for the glory of God. And at the very heart of that is the fact that we're family. We're brothers and sisters who are united together under the lordship of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what we find in Scripture. Because according to what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, he says, For he himself, that is Christ, is our peace, who has made both one, and has broken down the middle wall of separation. You see, we're no longer divided, though there may be many things that separate us, many things that make us different from one another. We're no longer divided. We are one. Why? Because Jesus Christ has come and made us one. Stephen Uly writes this. He says, when God makes us one with Christ, he also makes us one with each other, and we become members of the church, the body and the bride of Christ. Because we are united together in Christ and in his gospel, we as brothers and sisters in Christ are to work toward maintaining unity. As our study through the epistles of John told us, we are to be known by those who look at us as being people who have love for one another. We are to love one another, the brothers and the sisters in the faith, and that is to be our testimony to the outside world who look in. Now, does that mean that we're to tolerate 
moral and doctrinal evil in our midst? Absolutely not. You see, our unity as brothers and sisters is based upon the common confession that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And our faith in Christ and our adherence to the fundamental doctrines that are taught to us in Scripture are primary. And we must not appeal to love as an excuse to deny those essential truths. But on the other hand, we're not to entertain nor tolerate Disputes which arise from envy and bitterness and misunderstanding. We must actively seek peace within the body. Recognizing that we are one. God has brought us together as one. Perhaps D.A. Carson says it the very best. When he writes that the church, made up of brothers and sisters in Christ who live in unity with one another, is a beautiful expression of the gospel. But then he makes this startling statement. Listen to what he says. The church is made up of natural enemies. What binds us together is not common education, common race, common income levels, common politics, common nationality, common accents, common jobs, or anything else of that sort. He says, Christians come together because they have all been saved by Jesus Christ. They are a band of natural enemies who love one another for Jesus' sake. That leads me to the first point that I want you to see this morning. The first point on your outline today that we, we, we come to because of what, what Psalm 133 tells us and then what we learn in the rest of Scripture is this. The good and pleasant blessing of unity that God's people enjoy flows from God and centers on our common participation in Christ and His gospel. So in this penultimate psalm of the Psalms of Descent, we get a vision of blessing and unity that God provides His people as they gather together for worship. But now I want us to move on and look at the very last psalm of this grouping and in, in, in Psalm 134. And in it, we have described for us a scenario in which the psalmist describes the pilgrims they are they have assembled together and they are appearing to be able to start departing they've they've come to the mountain of God to celebrate the festival that they've come there for and now they're about to go home and as would have been customary during specifically at sometimes during the hot arid months in which some of these festivals took place they know they, they most likely gathered early in the morning when it was still dark outside in order to prepare for the long journey that they had back to their homes and as Walt Kaiser he does a good job of describing the setting he says that these caravan of pilgrims gather one last time, probably long before sunrise, so as to accommodate their long journey. And he says, in the quietness and darkness of the early morning, the pilgrims spot God's ministers carrying out their temple tasks in devotion to the same Lord that they had come to worship. And immediately an exchange of greetings in the name of the Lord goes up to the priests and the Levites, and then the priests and the Levites say something back to the pilgrims as they begin to depart. And the first couple of verses tell us that what the, what the pilgrims say to the priests and the Levites. And they say this, Bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who by night stand in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. Now, did you notice the two bookends that were there? The two commands that were lifted up to the priests and the Levites were the same thing. Bless the Lord as you do everything that you do there in the temple that is your responsibility to do. And then he ends with the same thing, therefore, bless the Lord. Now that, that 
command, bless the Lord, that, that caused me to ask some questions. What exactly does bless the Lord mean? I mean, how can we as finite and sinful humans bless an infinite and holy God? How can we who are so inferior bless a God who is so superior to us? How can we who are created beings bless the one who created us? Does, does blessing the Lord mean that in some way we add to God? Does it mean that, that in some way he is deficient and that he's in need of something that we can give him? By blessing the Lord, are we making him to be something that he is not in and of himself? Absolutely not. That's not what it means to bless the Lord. Rather, to bless the Lord means to praise him. It means to ascribe glory to him. It means to give him honor. It, it means to declare to others the truth of who God is and what he's done. Blessing of the Lord does, we do that with our mouths. We do it when we sing. When we come together and we, we lift our voices in unison and in harmony with one another, when we sing praises to our God, we are blessing the Lord. But I want you to know it does not stop simply with what we say and what comes out of our mouths. As a matter of fact, did you notice that they said, you servants of the Lord. To serve means that there's active duties in response and, and in regard to that. You can find a list of all the things that the priests and Levites were supposed to do. You go, can go back and read in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10. You can look in 1 Chronicles 9 and 23 and 25. And you can see all of the various responsibilities that the priests and Levites had. And when these pilgrims are calling out to them, they're saying not only bless the Lord with your mouths, bless Him with your actions. Bless Him in the things that you do. You see, blessing the Lord revolves around our lips, but it also involves our hands and our feet. In a nutshell, to bless the Lord means to live a life that honors God, to live a life that focuses upon God, to live a life for God. So the call here is not, not for us to add anything to the divine nature, to the eternal nature, to the complete nature of God. Rather, it is simply a call for us to testify to it and to His goodness. And it was not also a call that was being given from the pilgrims to the priest and say, you guys do that in our stead. We're going to go live the way we want to. Absolutely not. They were going back to their places of abode throughout the nation of Israel. But the priests and the Levites, they knew they will stay there in the temple day and night serving the Lord. And so you do that in our stead while we go back to our home places and we continue to live our lives that are consecrated to the Lord as well. So that's the call from the pilgrims to the priests. The last verse of this psalm is the blessing that the priests respond to those pilgrims with. Verse 3, we hear the priests call out a departing blessing and they appeal to God to bless these worshipers as they depart from Mount Zion. And they say this, the Lord who made heaven and earth bless you from Zion. Now we've already looked at what it means for us to bless God. What does it mean for God to bless us? How can the infinite and holy God bless finite and sinful creatures like us? How can, how can the superior God of heaven bless the inferior like us? How can the one who created us bless the men and women that he's created? Well, I am super glad you asked that question too. Because you see, to be blessed by God means to be in a covenant relationship with him, whereby you have received the gift of salvation through his son. It means being blessed with his presence, being blessed with his help, being blessed with his love, ultimately being blessed with God himself. It means that God is no longer against you, but that he is for you. 
How is it that we can receive such a blessing as that? Is it a quid pro quo kind of scenario? Is it a deal that God makes with us that says, okay, if you bless me, then I'll bless you in return? Is it a situation where in which he rewards us for doing good things if we live morally upright lives and, and live lives that are a little bit better than those who are around us so that we distinguish ourselves from them, that God then will bless us with, with that blessing? Is that how it works? Absolutely not. See, what the scriptures go on to reveal to us is that the blessing of God rests upon those who humble themselves and by faith receive the grace that God offers through his son by confessing their sins before him and repenting of those sins and making him Lord of their lives. You see, the apostle Paul writes this. We've been talking about Ephesians. He says in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's through faith. It's not of works. Lest anybody stand before God and say, you know, the reason that I'm here is because I did this or because I did that. God says that's absolutely not the case. It is only by grace that comes to us through faith. And so to be blessed by God means to receive his unmerited favor by trusting in what Christ accomplished on our behalf on the cross. That's what it means to be blessed by God. And it's what leads me, and leads to the living lives that, that lived in such a way that they are then a blessing to God in return. That then leads me to my second point that I want you to see this morning. Second point on your outline is this. A life lived for God that trusts in Christ and testifies to his lordship is a life that blesses God. It's a life that is blessed by God. So this is how our journey through the prism of the Psalms of the Ascents end. With as Josh Moody has written, it's unembarrassed, unashamed, untarnished blessing and praise with a finale that has no disappointment to it whatsoever. It's a journey that has taken, taken us from a life lived in a faraway land among faraway people to a place of repentance and a place of blessing and ultimately brought us into the very presence of God. And so as we reflect upon that journey and the journey of these pilgrims, let me ask you this morning, is that, is that the, the journey that you're on? Is that the, the focus of your life? Is that where you are going in your personal walk? You see, the, it, Moody goes on to write this. He says, the end of the journey with God is a place of unmitigated goodness. And the person who follows this gospel journey on a pilgrimage with God through this life will end that journey with unmitigated, unparalleled, untarnished, complete, and utter blessing. Now let me ask you a question. Hearing that as a description and understanding what the Bible tells us about what heaven will be like and what the blessing of God is like, why would anyone ever want to be on a separate journey? Why would anyone want to be on another path that would take them in an opposite direction of the path that the Bible describes as a place of unmitigated, untarnished, unending joy? I want you to know if that's where you are, then you may be living life this way, unsure, frightened. The thought of death may really make you fear and tremble. The thought of judgment to come may cause you to quake. If that's the case for you this morning, I want you to know there is another way. There is another path. There is another journey down which you can travel. You see, because of Christ, 
because of his birth that we celebrate at this time of the year, but because of his death on the cross for our sins, and ultimately because of his resurrection from the dead that promises us that we too can have eternal life, then by admitting that you are a sinner and by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ to save you, by confessing him as your Lord, you will begin a journey and you will begin to travel right alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ, just like me, just like others who are in this room. A life that ultimately ends with eternal life in the possession of God himself. To those of us who are on that path, those of us on that journey, we are brothers and sisters who travel together. We have Christ for our companion. We have heaven for our goal and the blessing of God on our lips and the assurance of God in, the, in our lives. And that should serve as great comfort for us when we go through difficult and troubling times. And it should serve as great encouragement to us to continue to maintain that unity that we have with one another. And that leads me then to my sermon in a sentence this morning. And that's this. As pilgrims united together through Christ, who bless God with our lips and our lives, we journey with confidence that the maker of heaven and earth has blessed us with eternal life in heaven with him. Is that how your story will end? Is that the journey that you are on? I pray that it is. I pray that as you have read these Psalms that you are even more convinced and you are even more committed to the unity that you have been blessed with by God through Christ. And I also pray that you are encouraged to continue to declare to others through your words, but also through your deeds and through your actions that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior and that what he has blessed you with, he offers to all who will by faith receive his grace and mercy. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let's pray together.